Hello, my name is Benjamin Kitchings, and this is the History Voyager, a podcast about history. Before I begin into the meat of part four, which is my deep dive into the Spanish flu, I would talk about the what has been going on with the History Voyager. So what has been going on with the History Voyager is I'm now on a bunch of social media channels and I'm on some new apps. I'm on, of course, I'm on Podbean. I'm on CastBox. I'm also searchable in your browser at thehistoryvoyager.com. I'm on Stitcher. And let's see. And also on Podhound, which as I record this now, I think Podhound is sort of new. But hopefully they'll get going. So anyway, in I'm also it, I have a YouTube channel which is searchable as the History Voyager. Now in that channel, I talk about the news of the day and also my opinions about the Corona or novel coronavirus. Now something you need to understand is I cannot mention the word coronavirus on. YouTube, so I call it the beer virus. Hey, you know, whatever. And as you as you'll notice, I really don't like that at all. I, I think it's frankly, I think it's censorship. So I think today we'll dive in now to the podcast about Spanish flu. Now you will notice, of course, that in a podcast about the Spanish flu. No one has yet died of the Spanish flu. Now, what I wanted to do in the first several parts of my Spanish flu podcast was set the world up. That is, show you the world in which Spanish flu entered and why lots of people, including this person on the other end of this microphone, happens to believe Spanish flu was so devastating, which had to do with World War I. Now, Spanish flu sat at sort of the confluence of basically changing times. So you had the Industrial Revolution, but leaders hadn't quite thought out the ramifications of the steam engine and the internal combustion engine in terms of locomotion in terms of getting across the planet. You had, basically to that point, the penultimate war between European powers, um, which at the time was called the Great War. You had, basically, these leaders that were existing in another era in their minds, not in reality, but certainly in their minds, where they didn't really understand the tactics of war. They didn't really understand the modern sort of tactics of war, and and they didn't really have an appreciation for the scale of the war they were fighting. Now, and that's on both sides. That's on both, or however many sides you want to talk about is however many sides, be it two or three, but most people go with two, but I want, I really doing the Serbia thing, I wonder if there's really maybe more three sides. But anyway, so I let's talk about the flu. Just the the flu on society. 
This was the defining moment, the Spanish flu, for arguably one generation and possibly two of people. That, you know, almost no one didn't know somebody who died of the Spanish flu. Um, there were half a million people in America who directly passed away. At least that's one source I found. Now, what you'll find in researching flu deaths, and I'm sure later on they're going to find this about corona, um, is medical researchers, medical personnel, and people like that of the day would decide, oh, this person, you know, no, they died of this, or they died of that, or so not the flu. And there were reasons, because the flu was scary. Dying of the Spanish flu was scary. And then forever after, if you survived, and a lot of people didn't survive. In fact, I think most of the people um, didn't actually survive the Spanish flu. But if you did, you, you were left with uh, neurological damage, um, in your, you know, damage to your nerves, damage to your airways, things like that. And, you know, people would report vivid nightmares. Um, most people did not die, um, quickly. Most people died very lingering deaths from the Spanish flu. And an enormous number of deaths of the Spanish flu were actually neurological in nature. And that's because your brain would have been choked off from oxygen. So you died essentially, I guess, of some sort of brain, like a seizure or something similar to that. But, you know, none of the medical personnel would have known that at the time. They, in fact, in 1917 and 18 was when people, at least in America, learned you could die of the flu or I guess relearn or arguably relearned it because the Italians in the 1500s when the flu had entered into the European consciousness the Italians figured out that you could die of the flu so and which brings us to the flu's name which is influenza which means that you were being influenced from the heavens seemingly from God or the angels. And they actually, and here's a big clue into, I guess, virology. When people were dying of the flu in 1918, the flu was not thought to be caused by a virus. Um, that would actually, that work would come in the 30s, in the 1930s. In 1918, they really weren't sure what the flu was and what it was caused by. And right through to the 1920s, it was, you could argue that the flu, the Spanish flu with people, they would argue that it really wasn't um, caused by a virus. It might have just been, they didn't really know. Now, the Russian flu, which was essentially a working generation before, was essentially this thing that came out of the steppe, we believe, or they you know, I, I have no dog in this fight, professionally or otherwise. But the people who know think it came out of southern China. Now, this flu was thought to be 
racial in nature, meaning that only Eastern Europeans could have it and could carry it, and that it was somehow it was somehow thought to be something that they was just in their makeup. Not that any of these doctors back then would have known anything about genetics of the day. So anyway, into this world of um, proto-industrialization and in some cases and industrialization outright in others comes this germ which was the first germ of its kind that did not have to travel at a walking pace. It could travel over the steam engine, which meant that the disease itself spread in a very nonlinear fashion. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when the Black Death hit. The Black Death would hit a town, and then news of the Black Death hitting that town would travel faster than the Black Death. And you would hear it. And so you would prepare for it. And you would be horrified by it. But the, the upshot of this is that there was time. With the Spanish flu, there wasn't really time. It was more like, you know, they report people would be, would just drop dead and they would be bleeding from their nose and mouth. And that was very common. And we now know that's because capillaries in the, I guess the, um, you know, the airways and stuff would, would rupture in what they call an immunostorm, which I'm sure I covered this before, but what an immunostorm was, was basically if you were healthy, if you had a healthy immune system, the virus would sort of sneak into your body. And for a little while, you know, you're, immune system would sort of ignore it. And then all of a sudden it would rear its head and your immune system would essentially freak out. And so it would fight so hard that capillaries in your lungs and in your airways would rupture. And so you would bleed out. And so that was how you could have people in town just fall down dead from bleeding. Or they would have you know, a choking death where your brain essentially chokes off from oxygen. But, you know, they didn't really understand the science. Even the doctors didn't really understand the science of what was going on. And that was, to me, in the research for this, that was a fascinating uh, and horrifying, honestly, um, sort of development or, or truth, I guess, is a word for it that I learned because I was researching this, which is that unlike today, when you go to the doctor today, you can be readily, you know, relatively certain that your doctor is knowledgeable about medicine. Well, back then, you know, doctors really only recently had to start knowing about science and biology, um, especially in America. So you could be in a place, in a, in a spot, in this country, and your doctor would have had 
no concept of what any of this was. And remember, nobody really knew what caused the Spanish flu. There was, at least while the Spanish flu was going on, there was no, um, I guess you'd say, vaccine or anything. It just sort of went away just as quickly, seemingly, as it had come. It, it stopped. History is about movements. It's about humans moving across the globe. It's about the movement of ideas. It's about shifting of ideas in the human mind. To be a historian is to be knowledgeable about, you know, a, a wide range of topics, enough to talk and to write them down and to argue them. And sometimes these arguments and these massive movements can lose sight of the small people. And I don't mean small in terms of they were insignificant or they might not have had somebody who cared for them. They might not have had somebody who loved them. But it's, it's hard sometimes to look at at a um, something as big as the Spanish flu, which was huge. Don't get me wrong. I mean, look, our genetic makeup inarguably is different today because of the Spanish flu. Okay, I said before in the podcast, and I think I need to say again, that this germ killed more humans than... You know, Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan, Hitler, Stalin, uh, all the wars America's fought in, you know, combined. More than AIDS, cancer, you know, heart disease, combined with all that. This is the single biggest killer of people, of human beings. Half a billion people died either directly from the Spanish flu or because of it. Now, it's not fair to say that one person gave it to the world. That's certainly not fair to say. But it is fair to look at this disease and to see mile markers. It is very fair to say that the disease basically changed fundamentally in one human being's body. And because of where this human being was on the planet when he was there, this disease went from something that was knocking around Kansas and perhaps something that was knocking around France to something that, you know, killed just a stupefying amount of people. An absolutely mind-boggling amount of people. I want to 
talk for a minute about one person. A person, you know, this you could write or talk about a credible history of this disease and, and talk about it as an evolutionary choke point. You could. But this is also a story about people, about individual people, and we're going to meet some of these people. I'm going to talk about them. There's one kid that I just thought, oh my God, I'm so sorry. His name is Harry Underdown. I want to talk about this tragic, essentially, he, boy. Um, he was a World War I casualty. He was born in near Ashford, Kent, in 1897. He grew up on a farm. He, he chose to stay on the farm when war was declared. But then he decided, in, at the end of 1915, he decided to enlist. He was a very small child, a uh, young man. I hesitate to call him a man. In America today, he couldn't even drink legally. Um, but then again, a lot of history over the years has been done by people that were much younger than him. So he was five foot, one, in, one and a half inches tall. He weighed 132 pounds. And he passed for military service. He joined the Army Reserve. And he was required to serve one day in the colors and the remainder of the period in the Army Reserve until such time as he was called by the Army Council. So although he was in the army, he kind of wasn't. So he had, I guess you could say he had one foot in both, I guess, both situations, if you will, the civilian and the military. For most of the people going to war, the decision to go to war is basically either one of financial consideration or one of essentially survival especially these days. But also, during that time, you had kind of this new force of um, what you want to call separating out of the families, or atomizing, I guess is the word that some historians use, of the family units. Now, family units before this were not nuclear. They were anything but nuclear. You had extended families sort of jammed up in houses and housing, um, whereas with the Industrial Revolution, you could separate out, you could go your separate ways. And the Industrial Revolution was a driving factor of this war, and it was a driving factor of the people who fought it and fought in it, was that, you know, I can, this is a job I can have. I can go off and, and fight for my country. And they were still laboring under the notions of 
honor and glory, remember that a lot of these people had no concept of, of the death and destruction that they would see at the hands of the fruits of the Industrial Revolution. And they certainly wouldn't have had any concept of the Spanish flu being a killer, being the killer that it is. Harry Underdown enlisted in the military for full-time in 1915. By the time he'd enlisted in the military, at the end of 1915, he'd come down with tonsillitis. He spent most of the rest of that time, all the way up till April of 16, with tonsillitis in the hospital. When he was pronounced cured, he went back into the fighting in France. Almost immediately after that, an ordinance had discharged next to his body. This had him in the hospital once more. Now, perhaps the key here was that the army let him rest at home. This is because he was not physically injured. He was more psychologically shaken. He was unable to speak, and he was prescribed a cure of rest and bromides. Despite these misfortunes, Harry was determined to stay in the military. In November of 1916, he left the hospital and returned to his regiment. After being detained in England for a few weeks, Harry crossed back into France in February of 17. Within a couple of weeks, he had been struck down by widespread bronchopneumonia. This was likely his first encounter with what we would later call the Spanish flu. The doctor, a Dr. Hammond, noticed that the symptoms seemed consistent with pneumonia. He had sounds of crackling in his lungs, and you could hear it, and the doctor found that very strange. And there was a lot of pus in Harry's lungs, and the doctor also found that strange. And basically, it made him visibly distressed, and he was panicked, and attempted to leap out of bed. Of course, this was the tip of the iceberg, as we say. And again, this is a, uh, a common, I guess, like a common symptom of the Spanish flu is neurological, where they fidget and leap around because their motor cortex is being attacked or whatever by the virus. And anyway, this was the tip of the iceberg. Harry's condition deteriorated. His skin basically got dark, and his face was, you could visibly tell he was losing oxygen. And Harry Underdown died soon afterwards. The doctor, Hammond, noted that this was the 20th fatal case of a widespread bronchial pneumonia since that year began. Lieutenant and his colleagues became intrigued and very concerned by this development. They speculated that it was unusual condition and might perhaps be related to the war. Like they really thought this was something the Germans had cooked up, like in a laboratory. Dr. Hammond and his team, which also included the head physician of the Army Hospital in France, wrote up their findings and published them in the 
Lancet in July of 17. This caught the attention of other physicians in the town and base, and they began to swap letters with each other. But the emergence of the widespread pneumonia had piqued the curiosity of some of the military establishment, and Harry Underdown's death, okay, like the disease that killed Harry Underdown, would eventually cause 156 deaths during February and March of 17. Bradford and Hammond continued to conduct further research into the condition. One aspect of the disease became evident after death. During autopsy, the lungs uh, would be found to contain uh, damage, and they would also be filled with pus, like it was as though he was drowning. There was widespread bronchitis, and on being sliced open, a thick yellow pus would ooze out, and in some cases contained... Um, literally like the influenza and the bacteria itself. Of the 156 soldiers that were diagnosed and died with the, with the bronchitis in the winter of 17, 45% had the excretions blocking the smaller bronchi. As the disease assumed such proportions as to constitute almost a small epidemic, at the camp, Hammond decided that these features constituted a distinctive clinical entity and named the disease purulent bronchitis in a paper for the British Medical Journal the following year. The most disturbing aspect of this bronchitis outbreak of the winter of 17 was its resistance to treatment. Doctors resorted to every conceivable type of approach including oxygen therapy, steam inhalation, and even bloodletting without an effect. While Hammond and his team were investigating the phenomenon of this bronchitis, a similar outbreak occurred at an army barracks in Aldershot, England, but it was going on in other places too. It was going on in China because, now here's an interesting link, the laborers in China at the, the camp in France, they had reported that similar outbreaks had occurred as early as 1911, if not before. But unknown to any of these people was what was going on in Kansas. Kansas, in the early part of the 20th century, was essentially still the Wild West. And you essentially still had people basically living with their animals, living amongst their animals, in, in close quarters with their animals. And one thing you have to understand, you, the you know modern person who's listening to this on your smartphone or through a browser, you know, these people in Kansas were literally living in dirt. They were literally living in houses made out of dirt. And they were living as family units and you know so if one person got infected essentially you could take down an entire house entire household entire family tree now 
Also going on in Kansas was a massive camp uh, called Camp Funston. Now what Camp Funston was, was essentially like a way station of people from all over the Midwest who were going to go to to war. They were they were going to go off to war um, for the army. And the way the the way the uh, the World War One uh, regiments would work is you would have baseball teams would be inducted together. You'd have towns be inducted together. You would have you know so like they wanted unit cohesion. So what they would do is they would induct already cohesive units into the army. So like pre-existing men's clubs, pre-existing uh, Masonic lodges, pre-existing baseball teams, pre-existing basketball teams, and so on. So you can obviously tell that not only would you get um, have a dangerous effect from regular casualties, that is casualties of the actual war, actual fighting, but you would have d d disastrous um, consequences when it would come to disease. Because what would happen? You would get a disease and you would convalesce, usually stateside, but you would also go home. Now remember that they didn't know about sanitation. They didn't know about viruses. So you're going home and you're contagious. And so what are you doing? You're infecting the community. You're infecting your town. And, and so this is how the war basically acted as a blender. And what we're going to see is throughout this podcast is that because the powers that be were still living in the 19th century, at least in their minds, they were constantly playing catch up. They, they, perpetually, they were constantly playing, you know, catch up with this virus, which was, had basically hijacked, you know, the industrial age and was traveling on it. And, okay, so this is part, this is the end of this part, part four of this podcast. And I hope you enjoy it. And that's really the wrong way to say it. But, um, you know, and anyway, uh, thank you for listening. Um, the It's been crazy. It's been absolutely crazy. But thank you for listening and keep it up. And I'll talk to you guys later. All right. Bye-bye.